Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Tim Evco. And this is M. David Green. And you're listening to episode number 31 of the Versioning Podcast. This is a place where we get together to discuss the industry of the web from development to design with some of the people making it happen today and planning where it's headed in the next version. So today we're talking with Sarah Drasner, who is a writer at CSS Tricks. She is an author, a consultant, and gives some pretty excellent talks on SVG and animations. So we're going to talk to her today about all of those things and much more. So let's go ahead and get this version started. Hey, Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. You know, thank you for joining us. Um, so this is the versioning show, and we usually like to start the show with a philosophical question. And your philosophical question for the day is, in your current career, what version are you and why? Well... Oh, that's a good question. I think I've probably gone through a breaking change at some point. So, <laughs> so it's probably like 2.0 or something or 3.0, but not because it's like super advanced, but just because there were breaking versions. <laughs> so how do you describe what your career is these days? Because you're doing a lot of different things. Yeah, I am. Um, and I kind of like that. I'm a naturally curious person. I've been a developer and designer for 15 years, so I, I kind of started when those things weren't very separate, actually. <laughs> uh, and, you know, things were done in tables and, you know, old neckbeardy things um, and <laughs> have been working ever since. So for the majority of my time working as a dev, I was really a generalist and worked on anything from like WordPress theme development to managing giant component libraries to being a lead front end projects ranging from for like typical front end kind of duties and you know a bit of back end but not super like full stack or anything last year i quit my job at truly i was a manager of ux design and engineering there and decided to go consultant freelance because i was working on a lot of stuff and there were a lot of opportunities arising and i'm i'm pretty happy doing this and business is booming. So it's pretty nice. I, I kind of work on different projects. I'm curious all the time. So I get to try out different things constantly, which I really enjoy. So this is cool. So you've, you've basically re-released yourself as a freelancer to the world. Yeah, yeah. I did that about, yeah, about a year ago. Was that a challenging process for you? Uh, I think it was a little scary at first because I was getting a lot of offers to do consultant work and Val Head and I started a company called Web Animations Workshop where we we're going to start doing workshops together. It was kind of like, okay, well, I have work for now, but like what's going to happen in, you know, four months from now when I don't or, you know, that was kind of a little bit intimidating at the time. But actually, it's been kind of the opposite problem where I have like more work than I know what to do with, which is a good, a good problem to have. So I've been pleasantly surprised at how it's gone. I think the only unpleasant surprise is my taxes. <laughs> a cons consultant taxes, spoiler alert, is like really complicated. <laughs> we, we could do an entire show just about how to manage your business as an independent consultant. It's so true. But um, one nice thing about the way you're working now, I mean, you, you have pushed away the illusion of security that comes from working with a company because you know, whether you're working for a big brand or small, you never know if in the next four months there's going to be more work for you or if the company's going to go in a different direction. Oh, yeah, totally. And I've definitely worked for um, I've worked at for giant companies, but I've also worked for small startups where it's like, oh, we have our seed round. That's good for now, you know, kind of <laughs> stuff. Um, so, um, yeah, you, you, it's kind of the nature of the business. But I think also the thing that I reminded myself when I went into consulting was um, the worst case scenario is I get a job. 
Like, it's not like there aren't, you know, engineering jobs out there or out there for my skill set, especially my um, experience history. So like the worst case scenario was just going back to what I was doing. <laughs> so that that wasn't so bad either. That's very true. And it's it's kind of exciting, too, because you're, you're kind of putting yourself in charge of your career. And I'm, I'm really interested in these web animation workshops. Oh, yeah. Basically, Val and I go around, you know, it used to be just around the country. Now it's going to be around the world when we hit Paris this year. Do these two-day workshops or one-day workshops where we have like a plethora of material that we cover. We're kind of like a Venn diagram of interests and abilities when it comes to web animation. So we just naturally noticed we tend to agree a lot on stuff. So it, it kind of came naturally. We were like friends first and started saying, like talking about web animation. And when, when we'd like hang out and stuff, we'd like, man, we we're really closely aligned on a lot of stuff. So the workshop was actually pretty easy to put together. So what, what, does, what does the workshop entail? Oh yeah, we 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 like kind of cover the gamut. So we'll start. We start off with some theory. She goes over some theory about animation as a whole and what can be learned from the history of animation and what can be learned about like the history of easings and timings and spacings and things like that. I tend to go into like some UI UX considerations for animation. We talk a little bit about getting buy-in or in integrating into a design system. Then we start to pull into at first. CSS animation, then we go to JavaScript animation with uh, Greensock, then we do Mo.js, then we do React implementations, and then we talk about web animation performance. And if we have time, we t we can talk, we have the, the slides and stuff for um, web animations API and also D3, but we tend to like get to one of those, not the other one. So yeah, we just have, we have tons of material. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like there's not that much to cover at all, really. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to keep into consideration. Oh, we talk about React Motion also. There's a lot to, and SVG animation. God, I'm missing whole swaths of our workshop. Yeah, so we go over like how it, what it's like to animate SVG and optimize and stuff. It's very interesting given that there's so much material about animation to go over because in my experience, right, I'm a, a lead front-end engineer where I work right now, so you know, I'm implementing all of these designs um, that I get from our design team, but it always seems like animation is never really given much thought, right? Yeah, and that's that's kind of what we're um, why we focus on it and why we talk about it because actually, like animation when done well is really really powerful to guide your users. You can actually change your lead conversion because loaders have a huge impact on perceived performance. There's just like a ton of reasons, like. Users are building spatial awareness. If you can hide and display things as they need, then you clean up the space, you make it much more engaging for them. But when it's done poorly, it can be kind of jarring, which I think is why it gets a bad rap sometimes. So it's really important to do it well. And that's what we study. And the the thing about animation too is that you really need to be right, using the right tool for the job. Like if you are you know, working with CSS animation when CSS, CSS animation is just not gonna cut it and you need to move to JavaScript, you know, that's some, something that you have to kind of work through. Like React Motion is really good at a certain type of motion that's interruptible, it's a single gesture, but it's not good at se sequential movement. And that's like part of the way that the, the you know, author kind of designed it. So we go over like when to use what, where, like this is really good for this kind of thing. This is really good for this tech stack. Like get your hands on it, work with it a little bit. Now you see, you know, like the students can see for themselves 
what that what we mean when we say that it's not just like take us at our word it's like okay you play around with it see what you think because there's a lot of considerations you know you don't want to put a huge thing into your life you know like a library or you know make an investment there and realize it's the wrong choice for your for your needs or your customers needs yeah that definitely that is very very good advice i've i've more than once gotten bitten by approaching an, an animation with the with the wrong strategy from the get-go. I'm curious so how you got into the subject of animation to begin with. Ah, yeah, that's actually kind of interesting. I was a, you know, lead front-end and also doing, you know, managing giant component libraries. And at times I would get kind of burnt out, like not just because there's so much work to do and like just giant systems are complicated and you know there's social politics between design and engineering that you have to navigate if you're going to work with both worlds to stave off burnout i would make little projects for myself on the weekends like i was just like okay it's like sunday afternoon i have a mimosa you know my you know significant other and i are going to like hang out and watch tv i'm going to just code a silly SVG animation, it was at first, I was just curious and just interested in it. And then it kind of like, I noticed that it really helped. Like I would, even though I had worked some during the weekend, I would come back to work like feeling super jazzed. <laughs> um, you know, which doesn't really like you think like that doesn't quite make sense. Like you'd think that the more time off you have, the better you feel. But like, I was noticing that even if I took a vacation, I would feel better for a little while and then like start to feel kind of uh, like again soon, <laughs> like two weeks later, three weeks later. What I was really missing was the excitement, like that dopamine rush of like, wow, I got this thing to work and it's like super strange and like maybe a little ridiculous. And <laughs> um, so I think I, I initially got into it because of that and also because of, you know, UX and UI concerns. There were, you know, so many things to consider when we were dealing with animation at work and I really wanted to do it well. So I think some of this stuff did like immediately translate to something I could use at my job. And that was like doubly rewarding. You know, I'm making something ridiculous and silly on the weekend. And then I can also apply it once I got to work and be like, look, everyone, we can do this now. And they're like, whoa, okay, cool. That that was probably like one of the biggest shifts in my career. Okay, so everybody just heard this. SVG animation is addictive. <laughs> it is definitely <laughs> addictive. <laughs> it, it, it's funny because I, I think of SVG primarily as you know, it's the scalable vector-based way of presenting images on the screen, but I don't think of it immediately as an alternative for animation, and yet it offers a number of advantages in certain contexts. I'm curious, what have you discovered to be the advantages for SVG animation? So SVG animation is not an alternative to animation. SVG animation is animation and it use the, uses the same tools. Um, okay. uh, but you have different concerns with SVG. So if you're manipulating a div or um, or like a, a bitmap, like you're used to working with maybe uh, PNGs or JPEGs for graphics, um, the thing about them is that they're flat. So if you have to move around specific pieces of a JPEG, like you, let's say you have an ocean scene with a boat in it, you'd have to actually like cut up the boat from the see and like move them around separately kind of thing it gets a little hacky you have to do some positioning like maybe you have a position relative on the containing unit you have position absolute inside to have the boats like kind of moving svg is a graphic that has a navigable dom it's built with math so there's 
an ability to dive right into it, grab a piece of it and move it around in a way that, you know, a static graphic can't do. And it can it has it opens up doors for accessibility. You can play with it like a piece of string because you like actually literally have these Bezier's like that are the curve commands that you can manipulate with request animation frame. Um, there's so many cool and interesting things you can do with it. So all of the things that you know about you know, CSS animation or JavaScript animation can be applied to SVG animation. They're not two different things, but the world of SVG opens the door to so much stuff that is just like either complicated or impossible to do with static graphics, especially for a UI UX animation. If we're talking canvas, that's like a whole other thing. But if you're talking about like manipulating stuff on the page. SVGs are really powerful and they're super small, so they're really performant. I, I love that. And uh, it, that's a really clear way of explaining uh, you know, why it's important for people to understand this particular approach to presenting this information. Also, I really hope someone makes a t-shirt with the phrase SVG, it's built with math on it, because <laughs> I'll buy like five of those. <laughs> that would actually be a really fun one to do. Like if you got like a designer who could do like really crazy mathy mathy kind of graphics that would be nice well maybe somebody who had a background in scientific design oh yeah that's true that's true <laughs> so, <laughs> which i believe is one of your backgrounds <laughs> yeah, i was gonna say speaking of backgrounds i think we have yet to to hear about yours oh yeah um so i started off as a scientific illustrator um which means that i drew snakes and lizards and dead things for encyclopedias so like my parents are scientists and i was getting into art at the time so that was like my way of rebelling but of course like the way to you know like the way to be the most nerdy as possible while drawing is to be a scientific illustrator like you can't get that far away from your parents um, um, so uh yeah i started working at the field museum in chicago um it's field museum of natural history they are a really cool museum they have that giant sioux t-rex thing and the reason why people used to use drawings instead of, say, a photo is that a photo necessarily has a depth of field. So if you have something that's small, you have like an aperture and something's blurry always. So that's why they would ha hire people like me to draw drawings. But while I was working there, they invented a type of camera that took images at every level of like you know the thing and then composited them together to make a totally crisp image and i was soon not really that employable anymore because if you can do like even if that machine is expensive they buy it once and they don't have to buy it again so but they they liked me i think um so they were like oh you know we want to keep you on can you build websites and so this is back in 2000 so it's like a while ago um, and that was back in the days where you could pick up a book like HTML for dummies and like learn in a weekend kind of thing um, the tech stack was not complicated it was really really simple it was table layouts it was inline JavaScript which is cool again um, and like people weren't even like at the at the museum at the time people weren't even using CSS yet like it was still kind of like this is controversial um, <laughs> so um, I, I kind of started to learn table layouts, but the webmaster there, you know, kind of taught me more and made it, you know, taught me like industry standard kind of practices and stuff. So I started building sites for them. Then I built sites for, um, once I was in the scientific community, people kind of knew about me. So I built, built sites for UCSF and Stanford and like a couple of other nerdy places. 
And then I went to grad school, and then I became a professor in the Greek islands. Um, I was a study, broad, a study broad professor there for four years and took students around to the different islands and taught them about the histories there and did like some digital studies. But I still kind of did website stuff on the side because I was paid 10 grand a year, I think, like really, really low teacher salary. And turns out you can't not pay your student loans for that long. So I <laughs> eventually did have to get a real job. So I came back to the States and um, started working for an agency here. And then I've just been working in, uh, you know, kind of San Francisco tech scene ever since. I have to say in 31 episodes, that's probably one of the more interesting origin stories that we've heard so far. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a little older, so I have more time to, to generate stories and stuff. <laughs> I love how you've put it together. But you, you left out one part that I find particularly interesting, which is that you, you went into public speaking and writing, which isn't something that a lot of nerdy tech people tend to go into. Yeah, I guess like that stuff really only started the last year or so. It's gotten really fast. Like I'm invited to a lot of stuff now, which is really awesome. But when people ask me like about because a lot of people like a lot of people contact me like wanting to speak, you know, especially like women in tech and like for advice and mentorship. And the thing I always try to remind them is that I haven't been doing the speaking part that long it's just become kind of a rolling ball and that they shouldn't feel bad if they don't have that much experience because that's something that you can always still get. <laughs> Put that word out there that if you want to speak, definitely keep trying. You know, it's it's not like you the first time you submit, you get like all the speaking engagements. Um, it's, just, you know, it's kind of like you try and then you show up for it and it, it kind of comes as it goes. No, I know you've also been writing for for a bit longer than that, though, right? I guess like writing and teaching for me has always been a way to kind of understand things better, too. Like I, I was a professor before, so I'm kind of like familiar with the teaching format. And what I've noticed is I grasp a concept much more when I have to write it down. So I used to be like when I worked for big companies, that was a lot in a lot of times in the form of documenting what I was making, you know, like writing a bunch of code, then documenting what we did, like for a giant system or something like that. When it comes to community work, what I thought was cool was like, I would find something out or like start to learn something. And then if I could write it down for other people, I had this like two birds with one stone thing of not only could I grasp it better, but other people could do stuff with it too. And that's super exciting to me, especially when I see like SVG animations and somebody's like, I learned this from, you know, reading Sarah's thing. That's like the coolest feeling in the world that like somebody's able to do something because of something that you, you taught them, especially because the community has taught me personally so much stuff. Like I have learned, you know, Stack Overflow is like I am indebted to them for the rest of my life and same with CSS tricks and same with David Walsh blog. Like there's so many concepts that I've learned because the community is so open that um, giving back felt pretty good. It sounds like that can be addictive too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> so what kind of problems do you see people coming to you with around their, uh, around the issues that you've been teaching? 
people come to me with a bunch of different things. I would say that the work that they come to me with for like contract work is a little bit different from the community work that I do uh, for contract work. It's usually either like, how do I get animation into this giant system? And like, can you come teach us how to, how to do that? Um, and like what the concerns are. Sometimes people hire me to teach them about SVG or sometimes people mocked up an SVG animation for a client and then couldn't figure out how to, do it like sometimes I'm I'm called in like as a latch last ditch thing <laughs> to like fix the thing so I get I get like a, a myriad of stuff and some some are just like animation user flows micro interaction kind of things the community work that people usually ask me to do is more along the lines of like someone tweeting at me at 2 a.m. I can't figure this out I don't know why the strokes not there this this has to be shipped to production tomorrow please help here's a code pen those are like a little bit more like tiny bits of bugs or you know tiny bits of like interaction that they didn't quite get or something like that so I would say that that you know of course like the stuff that people hire me for are bigger projects and the stuff that people are asking for in the community are just to like clarify something um, or debug something I've sent that please help me with this SVG tweet, I think, to Joni Trithall at least twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's a, she's a great one, too. And Amelia Bellamy uh, Roy, uh, she's, like, probably, like, the smartest person I know. <laughs> she did the technical edits for my book, and there was, like, one thing in, like, hundreds, hundreds of things um, that she wrote that was not quite accurate. And for a day, I was, like what did I get wrong here? I don't understand. Like, it can't be that Amelia is wrong because she's, she's like literally never wrong. She's just super, super on it all the time and can like dig down and debug really, really well. So speaking of this book that you wrote, can you uh, give us a little bit more of an update on what that is all about and the process and all those things? Sure. Yeah, it just came out a couple weeks ago. I'm super stoked. If you are following me on Twitter, I'm sorry because I'm like retweeting and tweeting about it all the time. And like, I'm, I know I'm probably annoying people at this point, but I'm just like, I've never written a book before and I'm really excited to see it out. And like the tweets of people actually receiving it are really exciting to me too. I worked on it for two years. So, and I think like actually the demos in it are like a whole nother year of work. So it's actually like the combined effort of a lot of time. And, you know, I, I tried really, really hard to cover a gamut of technology, a gamut of techniques and like kind of address some concerns about like that designers have about optimization and like how you work with this stuff to like reduce path points and make it performant. And then, you know, that developers have about how to animate and, you know, all of the kind of tools available to you. So yeah, I run from here's how you work with it in Illustrator to like, here's how to like, you know, work with these tools to like, here's a bare metal implementation with just request animation frame and just like creating an SVG in JavaScript, if that's your bag. Um, so I tried, I tried to make it as cohesive as possible. That sounds pretty comprehensive. I was going to ask you where you recommend people look to start learning about these things, but I think I know the answer to that now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I did try to make it the thing that I could point to uh, when people have questions and stuff, too, because um, I get that question a lot. Like, I want to start learning this, but I'm not sure how. So the book is, is really meant to take you on that journey. So I, th I think I do have an actual 
technical question, and that question is, what happened to SVG2? Ah, I can answer that, actually. So just like a lot of browser specs, <laughs> uh, it was proposed, and people did it kind of like... People didn't really see the use for it that much because there were, it's kind of a catch-22. There's a lot of stuff in there that's like really super, like if you, you won't know that you need this unless you are really super into SVG, which like, you know, rightfully the browsers were kind of like, okay, people aren't really there yet kind of stuff. There's a, there's one piece of the spec though that I'm sad isn't going through or I hope gets implemented eventually, um, and it's the mesh gradient. So right now we can define radial gradients and we can define linear gradients and you can kind of combine them with opacity or something. But what a mesh gradient would allow you to do is basically map out gradients on a kind of coordinate system and make, like the name suggests, a mesh of different colors that blend into each other. So you can make full faces, you can make like, you know, robots with sheens and all sorts of like really beautifully dimensional textures without a lot of data. Like it's really, really small and really, really, you know, rich. So that's the part that I like kind of cry about not being, I think the rest of SVG too, like, I, like I'm excited for it, but nothing's gonna like make or break my life. The mesh gradient part is like, ah, what the web could be kind of, kind of thing. It's like, it is for me, like as a SVG person, that's like the equivalent to a layout person's really being into CSS grid. It's like a game, a total game changer. And there's like this kind of catch 22 of like, well, nobody is using it, but there's no implementation. So nobody can use it. So that's, that part's a little bit like hard for me. <laughs> I think that's true about every web standard out there. You can't know if anybody's going to use it till it's there and it's available. Right, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, and it's not even like available under a flag or available in some browser. It's not, it's not available anywhere. So, yeah. So how can people find you and find out more about what you've been teaching and also find your book? Oh, yeah. I'm on Twitter. I'm Sarah underscore Edo, E-D-O on Twitter uh, with Sarah with an H and I tweet there like I tweet my articles or my talks or um, any resources that I work on or other people's resources that I think are cool and my book is available on Amazon or um, O'Reilly um, either one works it's called SVG animation so it's pretty easy to find and yeah I also write for CSS tricks I came out with a post today I come out with about one or two a month some months I go crazy and write five <laughs> and I wrote about Vue, which I'm, I'm wearing the t-shirt of right now, which is a JavaScript framework that I'm, I'm into. Um, Represent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. Um, I also like React, too. People tend to think that it's an either-or kind of thing, but it's not. Oh, CodePen, of course. I do tons and tons of open source work on CodePen and make tons of demos so that you can explore code um, and try to make a lot of resources there. So many different places that you forget about them yourself. Yeah. <laughs> That's usually the first one I mention. I can't believe I forgot it. Oh, it's an impressive portfolio. And, and uh, I know that people are going to be out there looking for, for all of your stuff. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now I'm excited. 
excited to tell you about a new sponsor of the show, HelloSign, with their developer-focused e-signature API. Long gone are the days when you'd have to mail or fax a contract or agreement to a client or partner or a new hire, waiting days or weeks to confirm everyone was on the same page. Thanks to platforms like HelloSign, you can get documents emailed, signed, and projects underway in no time. But now you don't even need to email them with HelloSign's e-signature API. The e-signature API allows you to bring HelloSign's document signing platform to your site, making it even easier for partners or new hires to sign on to your next big project. Integration is quick, the documentation is clean, and you can get documents embedded into your site or app with just a few lines of code. Now you can take advantage of HelloSign's e-signature implementation, ranked number one on G2 Crowd with the best API support you'll ever need. Go to hellosign.com API, sign up, get signing, and get things moving. Wow, she's amazing. She's doing so much that she can't even keep track of all of it herself. Yeah, it was incredible hearing her her background story first off i didn't know there was such a thing as a what was was the term scientific illustrator did i get that right i hadn't really heard of it until i read her bio but once she described it it made perfect sense yeah you're like oh there's a need for that right at some point like because you know when you think about like old encyclopedias and things like that you you can envision those sorts of drawings so she 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 schooled me on svg too yeah that was so first off i i a big um a big confession to make on my side. I don't actually do that much animation with SVG. In fact, it's not that I avoid it. Well, maybe it is because I've, I've never really done any SVG animation like on my own for fun uh, because it just sounds so hard. I mean, really, when you look at an SVG, first off, it's like you're punched in the face with math, right? There are just numbers everywhere. And I've I, there are some people who can, you know, literally write SVGs by hand, which don't even get me started on that. But it is this sort of intimidating thing when you look at it. It's just a bunch of decimal points, and there are like paths and things like that, but it's 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 a lot of tedious sort of stuff, and there are, you know, weird sort of properties that go on SVGs and things like that. But it seems like Sarah has really been able to make it this digestible and dare I say, fun sort of thing. If she can make it fun, I, I well, if she, I'm sure she can, and I'm going to I'm gonna go get her book and I'm going to try, because when I look at SVG, the thing that, that intimidates me and that stops me from moving forward with it is all of the, you know, basically it brings me back to the early days of XML, when you've got all of this, this complex structure, and it's distinct. It's separate from the structure that you have in your HTML document. And there are separate CSS properties that apply to the types of elements that live inside of an SVG that look like they're doing the same things that the properties in CSS are doing to, to DOM elements, but they're doing the same thing to an SVG element. So it's a different property. And I, I just, you know, I, I, I love CSS as it applies to HTML, it's, uh, it, you know, I'm passionate about it. I enjoy it. But then I think, oh my God, I have to learn another one. Oh yeah. Every, every now and then I'll be fooling around in developer tools and, you know, in the CSS portion, you hit the one key and it autofills for you. Like every once in a while, I accidentally like hit Q or something. I'll get the CSS property. And I'm like, what is this for? And sure enough, it's some sort of thing that applies to SVG only. And sometimes I get excited when I see those things and I think maybe I can do something with CSS on an HTML element that I didn't know I could. And no, it turns out nope. we can only do so on SVG. SVG. <laughs> 
But actually, Cyrus Wyden speaks a lot about this, that in a lot of cases, SVG is better than the CSS hacks that we usually use. For example, uh, a, a triangle as a decoration, right? SVG handles that so much better and so much more simply than, uh, you know, CSS pseudo attribute will. But we don't often reach for it first because, and maybe this is just a part of if you were in the industry early enough to know what XML is, um, I mean, it really does get associated, at least in my head, with XML. And when I think about the two things, I think, ugh, I, I really don't want to touch that because it's just so complicated and weird and foreign. It's not just that it's complicated, weird, and foreign, but some of us have been in the industry long enough that browser support for SVG was very iffy. Yeah, that's that's very true. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I asked Sarah about SVG2, because... So the reason, the only reason I actually know about that is because I wanted to learn SVG better um, maybe a year or two ago, and I started to write like a mini library that would help you uh, do some SVG stuff easier uh, with JavaScript. And I started to, you know, make, you know, like certain like functions and, you know, you, you know, add this method and you get this property out of an SVG. And I started looking at like, what were some more things that I could do with SVG for this library? And so I pulled up MDN and sure enough, I saw a whole bunch of things that had no support and were just, you know, this is just in a spec. This is maybe coming later. And there's a whole bunch of very interesting, but complicated and obscure things that SVG2 would be able to do. And I mean, I certainly don't remember seeing anything about mesh gradients. Uh, I looked at it for a few minutes and I was like, nope, no way, not gonna be able to do any of this stuff. <laughs> um, but that said, the browser support issue is a frustrating one because there are, there are properties wherein, you know, of course nobody is interested in this thing because we don't know that it's possible. Nobody's even tried to use it before, but if browser vendors implemented it, it would change how we work with the web. How do we, how do you solve that problem? Because you can't just go and build a polyfill for mesh gradients. Well, the way our industry has been solving it for years is some browser developer decides that they're going to be the first to implement this. And if they're Microsoft, maybe they're going to do it to the exclusion of other companies that also have browsers and try to get people to use their browser exclusively. Um, I'm not sure that they're still doing that, but they have been doing that in the past. Um, and then that standard gets implemented in one place. They convince developers to start using it. People see that it works and think they can use it elsewhere. It fails elsewhere. And then the other browser developers have to play catch up. I'm not sure that that's really a good approach. Well, now that you mention it, that's exactly what happened with responsive images. Uh, Yoav Weiss actually got crowdfunded to literally write the commit for Blink to enable responsive images according to the specification. Um, that was maybe a few years ago, but for all of us nerds, it was a very exciting time, and it worked. Um, maybe we can have Yoav on the show and convince him to just, you know, do it all over again. I'm sure it was very stressful and a lot of hard work, but you know, maybe uh, maybe we can make it happen. That's uh, it's kind of terrifying, but that might actually be the only way that you can make something like this happen if you want to really force it on the community. Also, Yoav, if you're listening, I apologize. I don't mean that it has to be you. You're, uh, he's, Yoav's an excellent guy. He one time was driving home from a conference. I think 
with his family in somewhere in Europe, and I tweeted him with a question, and I'm not sure if I remember this correctly. I think he like pulled over on the side of the road to answer my tweet, which I felt terrible about. But uh, that was a that was a thing that happened. That's the type of person that it takes to uh, just go on their own and add a new feature to the web for you know the whole world to use. And Tim, you are making a reputation for yourself with everybody as the guy who's tweeting that question. That's what. That's that's how I got here today. That's how. I, <laughs> that's how I've gotten to the position that I'm in. I just tweet the right people at the most random times. <laughs> I think I like Sarah's method better. She uh, she found things that she was passionate about. She dove in. She started building these things that were fun. And, you know, got that little dopamine rush. And by the way, I, I, I have to admit, I, I've, I have said it before that, uh, you know, I get a little thrill when I make a CSS thing work the way that I want it to work. But the way she described it, um, you know, it was like she was looking into my soul and saying, oh, yes, this addictive personality that you have, it, it has a practical application. And here it is. Yeah. In fact, when she, 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 she grouped burnout with working on something else is a cure for that burnout. And I think when she mentioned that, both of our heads kind of cocked to the side, like, wait, what? You were burnt out and then working on, you know, stuff that you do at work sort of helped you out of that. But now that I think about it more, I've done that very same thing. In fact, um, sometimes when I get home from work or even on weekends, uh, sometimes my wife and I will, you know, drive out to Long Island during the weekends and I'll bring my laptop with me. And I've been in my spare time, hidden away on GitHub, I've been building a stupid little, like, battleship game, right? It's fully client-side, you know, service worker and all that stuff. But it's just so much fun to work out these challenges. I've never made a game before. It's probably all wrong, but the code looks very nice. Uh, but it really, it's it's refreshing for some reason. I can understand that. And, you know, I, I've, I've had that exact same experience. I'm working on a little animation thing myself on the side, not something that I can publish yet, but something that needs sort of a live, a live generative uh, component to it, as well as being visually compelling and engaging, something that draws you in. And you, you, you find that working on something like this, as opposed to working on the project that you are fulfilling for somebody's contract that you have to finish on a certain deadline according to somebody else's specifications, it's a very different experience. It, it massages different nodes in your brain. Yeah, and I think there's a lot to be said about getting excited again as being the cure for burnout. And Sarah, Sarah is a good embodiment of that. You can see the, the enthusiasm that she brings to her work right down to the point of crying over mesh gradients. Yes, uh, I've, I've probably cried over lots of things on the web, but mesh gradients hasn't been one of them. <laughs> well, now that I know about them, maybe I will, because it does sound like it's a pretty cool concept. Yeah, uh, especially considering how small you can get with those mesh gradients, you could... I mean, depending, I haven't, I haven't seen this concept drawn out, but the way that Sarah described it, it, it almost sounds like you could start to rival actual non-vector images. Well, I've seen uh, mesh gradients. I've used them myself in Adobe Illustrator, and I know how powerful they can be in terms of simulating real-world textures. Uh, the idea that you might be able to do that dynamically in a very small file using SVG2, uh, talking to you guys who are controlling the standards... <clears throat> yeah, those uh, of you who listen to us ramble. <laughs> <laughs> They're out there, trust me. <laughs> but it's, it sounds very compelling, and I can understand why that would be an important thing. Yeah, uh, the writing. Every, man, every time I hear somebody talk about how much writing they do, I, I, I feel a little bit convicted, because 
I know I should be, and I actually, so I said that I would do this, David, and I followed through with it. I launched my blog, but so far it only has one post, and that post says that I launched a blog. So, hey, that's the first step. I, I've, you know, there there are other blogs out there that also have only one post, but yours won't be one of those. No, in fact, when I finish the game, which I'm I'm rushing to do now, that's going to be my second post detailing about how I, you know, built that thing. So hopefully, hopefully it'll good. And then hopefully I'll get a third post out explaining my first attempt at animating an SVG. I would recommend doing some little intervening posts that talk about the frustrations that you've been encountering along the way as you've been building your game. Because I think, you know, now we had a couple of people out here who might be interested in finding out how you build a battleship game and what they're going to what they're going to stumble across while they're trying to do that. Yes, definitely. That's a that's a very, very good point. So maybe I'll maybe I'll get to work. OK, everybody go out there and follow Tim's blog because you, you're going to learn a lot. You know, or don't, just or just forget about it. <laughs> Do you want me to edit that out of the show? <laughs> no, 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 you have to leave that in for authenticity's sake. Okay, fair enough. Well, thank you so much for listening, everybody. We always enjoy getting to talk technology with all of you. We'd also like to thank SitePoint.com and our producers, Adam Roberts and Ophelia Lachat, with production help from Ralph Mason. Please feel free to send us your comments on Twitter at Versioning Show and give us a rating on iTunes and let us know how we're doing. We'll see you next time and we hope you enjoyed this version.